Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. I'm going to do the Bible declaration today. Uh, and I wanted to say that up front because I normally do, and some of you are already leaning in, and I appreciate that. I'm so glad you brought your Bibles. Let's just check the Bible attendance in the house, though. Come on. Anybody got a Bible with them or a, a Bible app on their phone? We got a Bible, right? Amen. Good. We just believe in the Bible. We believe it's God's Word. I'm going to start my message today. Right now, if you want to, you can uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 3 and just hold your place in Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, I think, right? Colossians, it's towards the back of the New Testament. And I'm going to start today by uh, reading a story uh, from a book, and the title of the book is A Life of Miracles, and I want to read the story and then we're going to pray, but the message is starting now. On a cold and rainy Saturday, church buses were sent to the neediest parts of our city to find the homeless and the poor. The bride and groom eagerly anticipated their return and prepared a meal in their honor. The needy were to be the distinguished guests of their wedding. Ralph and Colleen met while working in our ministry to the poor. They shared a passion for God and a love for the needy. Although it is common for the bride and groom to register for gifts at fine department stores, Ralph and Colleen did so at Target. And all they put on their wish list were coats, hats, gloves, and sleeping bags to be given to their guests. This was not a typical wedding. In our pre-wedding meeting, the bride and groom encouraged me to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit in case he wanted to heal people during the wedding. They had created far too great a miracle opportunity for God not to do something extraordinary. Luke was one of the men that attended Ralph and Colleen's wedding. He walked with difficulty, needing the help of a cane. He wore braces on each arm and a large brace around his neck. We laid our hands on his wrists and prayed for the pain to be gone. Then he moved his hands freely, experiencing the healing he had just received. As a result of a terrible accident, Luke had an artificial shin and hip and had even lost half a lung. When the surgeons put him back together, one of his legs was an inch too short. We prayed for the leg to grow, and it did. God was at work. He replaced one inch of missing bone and removed all the pain caused by Luke's accident. He told me he had cancer and was given only a couple of years to live. The brace was necessary because of muscle loss in his neck. As we began to pray, I heard a doctor from our congregation pray for new muscles to grow. When we were finished, Luke was restored. His doctor gave him a clean bill of health, and the miracles continued long past the physical healing. Jesus restored the whole person. Although this kind of wedding remains unusual, 
Our church's deliberate pursuit of the poor and the miracles are common. This story is true. And it is closer to the normal Christian life than what the church normally experiences. The lack of miracles isn't because it is not in God's will for us. The problem exists between our ears. As a result, a transformation, a renewing of the mind is needed. And it's only possible through a work of the Holy Spirit that typically comes upon desperate people. The bride and groom, although noble, are ordinary people who serve an extraordinary God. There wasn't a great person involved except for Jesus. Can somebody say amen? The rest of us simply made room for God. Believing Him to be good 100% of the time. In the midst of this marriage celebration, God invaded a home marked by hellish disease and established a testimony for His glory. Can somebody say, do it again, God? Now some of you might feel like, gee whiz, that's a pretty supernatural, extraordinary story. And it is. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews 13.8 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How many of you know that Jesus doesn't change? His power isn't limited, but He is looking for people who will partner with Him through the person and the power of the Holy Spirit and allow Him to move in ways that are beyond our natural understanding and beyond our own capabilities. Would you pray with me? Father, we just thank you for the testimony that we just heard about in this story. Father, we just prophetically declare that our hearts are open and receptive and hungry this morning in this hour for you to speak to us from the Word renewing our minds and increasing our appetite and increasing our thirst and increasing our desire for your heart, for us as a church, for your heart, for this community, and for your heart and your kingdom to be established in and through our lives. We give ourselves over to you these next few minutes, Holy Spirit, and we thank you that you're going to teach us, you're going to instruct us, you're going to strengthen us, and you're going to encourage us In God's mighty, mighty word, in Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Living an empowered life. Come on, say it with me, church. Living an empowered life. And the subtitle is important. Understanding the importance of the person and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. I'm going to read it first as we get started. And then I'm going to ask us to read it together. And this is going to be in the amplified version, and it will be on the screen. This is what the Apostle Paul says to the church. Now to him who is able to carry out his purpose and do super abundantly more than all that we dare ask or think, infinitely beyond our greatest prayers, hopes, or dreams, according to His power 
that is at work within us. Would you read it with me, church? Come on, on the screen. Now to him who is able to carry out his purpose and do super abundantly more than all that we dare ask or think, infinitely beyond our greatest prayers, hopes, or dreams, according to his power that is at work within us. If you have a Bible or a pen and a highlighter, underline those words, according to his power. Because many times I hear this verse quoted partially. They say something like this, and unto him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all we could ever ask or think. And I'm left hanging. Like, come on, finish it. According to his power that is at work within us. You know what that means, according to. In other words, by and through God's power working in us. It's not by and through your power. It's not by and through my power. It's by our willingness to yield to the Holy Spirit and the person so that his power can flow through us. That's what according to means. Now this word power, in the Greek it's the word dunamis. Dunamis. D-U-N-A-M-I-S. And it means energy. It means might. It means great force, great ability, or great strength. And it's specifically speaking about God's power working in and through God's people. And Paul's telling the church that no matter how bold our request may seem, God can do all that we ask and much more by the Holy Spirit's power at work in us. Work in me, Holy Spirit. Come on, somebody say it. Work in me, Holy Spirit. Now, some people might feel like, gee, that sounds a little extreme. You know, in this particular part of town in the Bible Belt, we might have people on two sides. We got a lot of people that have been grown up in a more, I would say, maybe a conservative uh, Christian setting. I just want to use this term because it's easily identifiable. Maybe in a, in a Baptist upbringing, right? We love Baptists, amen? We love John the Baptist. We love all Baptists, amen? We're going to be in heaven with them. But that side of the, uh, the, the family might feel like, you know, I've got everything that I need. And there's part of that that's right. They do. They got salvation. They're saved. The Holy Spirit lives in them. Their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And they're going to go to heaven. Come on. When you think about it that way, they've got everything that they need. But then we got this other part of the family We'll call them the Pentecostals. Come on, anybody ever heard of a Pentecostal before? By the way, that's not a scary word, and it's not a bad word. I was sitting at a meeting a couple weeks back at a church meeting, and our senior pastor told everybody, we're a Pentecostal church. She looked at me, and she went like that. Her eyes got this big. Her jaw dropped. And then she told me secretly, she goes, when I heard him say that, I shut down. It bothered me. For some reason or another, she had a bad picture of something that had to do with the word Pentecostal. Can I just tell you the word Pentecost is in the Bible, and it's a really, really powerful, hard to understand, deep, deep theological word. Pentecostus in the Greek. Can I tell you what it means? It means 50. It means 50. Pentecostal. 50. Look it up. And Pentecost was a celebration of feasts. 
when they celebrated bringing in the harvest. And they celebrated about God was, what God was going to bring in the next year's harvest. So we, we got one side over here, Pentecostals, and what they're telling the side over there is saying, you need more. And over here, the Baptists are saying, we got everything we need. Oh, you know, no, 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 no. You need more. Believe me, you need more. And, and there's a part of what they're saying is true, too. Because even though we got everything we need to go to heaven, there is an experience that we see in the Bible where the power of the Holy Spirit is released on Baptist believers, on believers that are saved and going to heaven. And not only does it get them saved and send them to heaven, but because of the power that they experience, they begin to usher in some of heaven to the earth. And so they're both right. We've got everything we need to get to heaven. But we need more to usher in some of heaven on the earth. Can somebody say I'm with you, Pastor Robert? So the title of today's message is this, The Power of the Holy Spirit in Your Life. Will you say it with me? The Power of the Holy Spirit in Your Life. Now this time I want to substitute the word your for my. Personalize it. You ready? Let's say it together. The Power of the Holy Spirit in My Life. And here's the subtitle for this message, Discovering the New Testament Pattern for spiritual power. Now, I've struggled with this a little bit because we probably have enough information in the study guide for at least an hour message. So, I'm going to do my best to get us out of here in a timely fashion. But I don't want to be rushed because if I'm rushed, I think we'll miss something that's going to be revealing to us from the Scriptures. It's not what I'm saying. It's what the Scriptures are saying that will help us to understand this New Testament pattern that we see in the Bible for spiritual power, and I don't want us to miss it, okay? First thing I want us to know is this. Jesus Christ himself was adamant that his followers became empowered in order to live the supernatural life that he prescribed. So the goal for this teaching is to examine in the New Testament this pattern of spiritual empowerment. And then once we identify that, we're going to look at three important truths about spiritual power that will help us to live an empowered life. Okay? So the first thing, the New Testament pattern for spiritual power. Now, as I unveil this, I don't want us to get so locked in that we don't leave room for God and the Holy Spirit to do something outside of this pattern that I'm going to show you. Because there are times when he, he just broke out completely different of this pattern. But what I want to show you is that there's this, there's this pieces that kind of all contribute to this empowered life that God wants you to live. And whether they go in order, step by step, or they all happen at once, that's not really the point that I'm trying to show you. I just want to show you that there's these pieces that kind of come together to help us to live this empowered life. Life. So I'm going to just tell you the pattern or the pieces, and then we're going to look at them in the Scripture. Here's the pattern. The power of the Holy Spirit with you, the power of the Holy Spirit in you, the power of the Holy Spirit upon you, and the power of the Holy Spirit through you. With you, in you, upon you, through you. Can you remember it? Say it with me. Come on. With you, in you, Upon you, through you. Let's look at with you and in you first. 
real quickly, John 14, 16, and 17, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. I'm going to pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, that's the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, listen, for he dwells with you and will be in a future time in you. Here, just so that we remember, Jesus reveals to his disciples that the divine power that they had experienced during their three years working with him was in fact the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was with the disciples through the life of Jesus. It makes sense? Amen? And then he goes on and he says, the Holy Spirit is going to change his position. He's going to change his proximity from being with you to being in you. Next, let's look at that, the Holy Spirit in you. In other words, this is when the Holy Spirit moves into and takes up residence in the disciples. John 20, 19 through 22. By the way, this is a Sunday. This is the day that Jesus was resurrected from the grave by the power of the Holy Spirit. John 20, 19 through 22. Then the same day, Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for the fear of the Jews, they were afraid. Their Messiah had just been killed. They didn't know what to expect. They were afraid. Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Shalom. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Can I just say, I think that's a little bit of an underemphasis. I think they were beside themselves. I think they were singing hallelujahs. Come on, I think they were doing cartwheels. I think they couldn't believe it with their natural eyes. There was something going on. Then it says this. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. Listen to this. Listen. Highlight this. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. What's that about, Pastor Robert? That's an interesting portion of text. I don't know if he breathed on them all together at once. doesn't really say. I don't know if he got together with each of them and got face to face with them and breathed in them one at a time. It doesn't really say. But it says, he said to them, as the Father sent me. Now, just pause. Remember, before Jesus was sent and launched into his public ministry, he was baptized. What's the significant thing that happened when Jesus was baptized? The Holy Spirit came upon him. And from that moment forward, everything Jesus did, everything Jesus said, everywhere Jesus went, every miracle, every powerful message, every uh, healing, every word, everything he did, he did by the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit in his life. As the Father sent me like that, I send you. And then he breathed on them and he said, right now in this moment, by faith and an act of your will, lay hold of this, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to notice this. That's the day Jesus resurrected from the grave. These disciples had already declared Jesus to be Lord. 
They had already decided to follow him. They believed he was the Messiah. They believed in their heart who he said he was. And now that he was resurrected from the grave, everything that needed to be accomplished for someone to be born again had been accomplished. Most scholars believe that when Jesus breathed on them and the Holy Spirit came to live in them, they passed from spiritual death to life, and they were born again, and they were resurrected from a dead spiritual existence. Can somebody say amen? And not only that, but there's some symbolism in there because when you look in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, man is lying there lifeless. And the Bible tells us that God breathes into the nostrils of man and man became a living being. He breathed into him the breath of life. But we know the story. Man sinned. Man fell. Man was separated. And all of this plan had to unfold. And now here's Jesus. He is the last Adam and the second man resurrected from the grave. He's a start of a whole new race that could be filled with the very Spirit of God again. And the first thing he does is he gets people born again by breathing the Spirit of life into them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Wow, so powerful. The Holy Spirit comes and he lives in the disciples. Lastly, the Holy Spirit upon and through you. See, having experienced this new birth, right? They're born again. Jesus next commands his disciples to wait for the power of of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. Acts 1, 4 and 5 and 8. You've read it before. And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. By the way, this is after he breathed into them. After they received the Holy Spirit. So in Jesus' mind, they're saved, they're going to heaven, but they don't have everything they need to be preachers, to be extending the gospel, to be demonstrating the love of God in a supernatural way. They don't have everything they need to go preaching and reaching. They needed something else. He said, you've heard this from me before. For John the Baptist truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The word baptized means to immerse. So Jesus was going to immerse them in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was going to come upon them. Verse 8, but you shall receive power, dunamis, God power, divine power, explosive power, energy, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And notice the through you. So that's the upon you. Notice the through you. And as a result of that, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the Holy Spirit upon them would enable them so that now he can move through them and they could represent Jesus Christ. The message of Jesus Christ is an empowered message. With you, in you, upon you, through you. Come on, say it with me. With me, in me, upon me, and through me. How many of you have heard the term Christian? What does this word Christian mean? Yeah? It's interesting. The term Christian is actually used only three times in the whole Bible. 
The first time is in Acts 11.26. Second time is 26.28, Acts 26.28. And the third time is in 1 Peter 4.16. Yes. But I want to show you where it comes from. It was originally given by non-Christians, secular people, to describe followers of Christ as fanatics or Jesus freaks. It wasn't complimentary. It was derogatory. And the word Christian is rooted in the Greek word Christos. It's a title. It means the anointed one. It means the empowered one or the Christ. What does that tell us? That tells us that the name Christian indicated that the same power of God that was first demonstrated in the life of Jesus Christ, the anointed one, was then replicated in the life of the New Testament believer. Why is that important? It's important because from its origin, the life of a Christian or follower of Jesus Christ was meant to be an empowered life. Amen. Not just an ordinary human life. It was an empowered life by the Holy Spirit. God wants you and I, God wants every Christian, every believer, everyone who calls them a Christian to live an empowered Christian life. Can somebody say amen? Now, that's a foundation. Now, real quickly, I just want to give us three truths about spiritual power, okay? Here's the first one. So simple. Truth number one. The Holy Spirit power is essential. The Holy Spirit's power, come on, say it with me. Is essential. You know what essential means? It's necessary. It's of the utmost importance. You can't do without it. Not if we're going to represent Jesus Christ. Not if we're going to teach and preach messages that are powerful. I'm not saying you have to preach and teach. I just, I just, we can't be a witness without the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice Jesus, Jesus tells him to wait more than once, more than just acts. There's another one. In Luke, where he tells them to wait. Watch this, Luke 24, 49. It's so essential. He says, behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. There's that word again, upon you. But tarry. Tarry literally means to sit down and wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. On high is heaven. Endued. Say endued. Come on. Endued. 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 Jesus was so adamant about his followers having divine power, catch this, that he commanded his disciples to be empowered and to wait for the power to come upon them. I want us to be reminded about the Holy Spirit. Because I mentioned he showed up in Genesis 2-7 in creation. God breathed life into him. But he showed up in chapter 1, verse 1. I found a video about the ruach, the Hebrew word for spirit, breath, wind. And it kind of goes forward to the New Testament energy, power, and uh, grace of the Holy Spirit. It's a video put on by Bible Project. It's a ministry. It's kind of animated. It's about four minutes long. It's educational, so don't fall asleep. Let's play the video, and after it's done, I'll come back up and finish our message. <clears throat> you ever heard the phrase, the Holy Spirit, and you want to know what it means, where do you start? Well, you have to start on page one of the Bible, where the uncreated world is depicted as this dark, chaotic place. But then above the chaos, God's Spirit is there, hovering, ready to bring about life and order and beauty. Okay, but 
What is God's spirit? Yeah, so the spirit is the way the biblical authors talk about God's personal presence. The Hebrew word is ruach. Ruach. Yeah, you've got to clear your throat at the end. So what is it? Well, ruach can refer to a number of different things, but what they all have in common is energy. Energy? How so? So there's an invisible energy that makes the clouds move or the tree branches sway. Right. Wind. So in Hebrew, that's ruach. Okay. Now take a big breath. So you feel that inside you. Yeah, the air? Well, specifically the energy, right? The vitality in your body that you get from breathing deeply. That, too, is ruach. And this is the same word used in the Bible to describe God's personal presence. Just like wind and breath are invisible, God's spirit is invisible. Wind is powerful, and so God's spirit is powerful. And just as breath keeps us alive, so God's spirit sustains all of life. Yeah, ruach. Now, as we continue on in the story of the Bible, we see God's Ruach giving special empowerment to people for specific tasks. The first person in the Bible this happens to is Joseph. God's Spirit enables him to understand and interpret dreams. And then it happens to this guy named Bezalel, and he's an artist. God's Spirit empowers him with wisdom and skills. He's given creative genius to make beautiful things in the tabernacle. And we also see God's Ruach empower a group of people called the prophets. They're able to see what's happening in history from God's point of view. That's exactly right. And here's the problem as the prophets saw it. While God's Ruach had created a really good world, humans have given in to evil. They've unleashed chaos into it through their injustice. A new type of disorder. Yes, and the prophet said the spirit would come, just like in Genesis 1, but now to transform the human heart, to empower people to truly love God and others. How will this new act of God's spirit happen? Well, centuries pass, and we are introduced to Jesus. And at the beginning of his mission, there's this beautiful scene where Jesus is being baptized in the waters of the Jordan River. Yeah, the sky opens up, and God's Spirit comes and rests on him like a bird. The story saying that God's Spirit is empowering Jesus to begin the new creation. And we see this happening when he heals people or forgives their sins. He's creating life where there once was death. Now... Israel's religious leaders oppose Jesus, and they eventually have him killed. But even here, God's spirit is at work. The earliest disciples of Jesus, who saw him alive from the dead, said it was God's energizing spirit that raised Jesus. This is the beginning of new creation. Yes, and it's still going. When Jesus appeared to his closest followers, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And soon after that, the Spirit powerfully comes on all of his disciples. So that they can become a part of this new creation and share the good news and learn how to live by the energy and influence of God's Spirit. And so today, the Spirit is still hovering in dark places. Yes, pointing people to Jesus, transforming and empowering them so they can love God and others. And the Christian hope is that the Spirit is going to finish the job. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a new humanity living in a new world that's permeated with God's love and life-giving spirit. Well, wasn't that good? I thoroughly enjoyed that. I love what he said. We're supposed to learn how to live by the energy, the power, and the influence of God's spirit. Jesus told the disciples... Wait until you are endued from on high. The word endued is the Greek word enduno, E-N-D-U-N-O. And it means 
to be completely covered or wrapped up in something as in wearing a set of clothes or a jacket. This power, this endowment from on high is to enable us to live the Christian life, share the message of Christ, and bring healing and restoration to people all around us. So the first point, real quick, is the Holy Spirit's power is essential. Here's the second truth. These two will be quickly. The second truth is simply this. The Holy Spirit regulates His power. Say it with me. The Holy Spirit regulates His power. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, where the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit are being taught. This is what the Bible says. All these, the gifts, the achievements, the abilities, the empowering, are brought about by one and the same Holy Spirit, distributing to each one individually as He chooses. Now, in His choosing people, That doesn't mean he's excluded people and he doesn't want some to have it and some not to. What that means is in the moment as the gift is needed, he'll choose someone to utilize the gift. And not only does he choose the person and the place and the time for the gift to be ministered like he did this morning with Joni sharing that prophetic word about complacency, he'll bring just the amount of regulated power for that instance that it requires so that it's exactly the way the Holy Spirit wants for it to be. This is important because some Christians may have had an experience or because of a lack of experience, they might be a little uneasy when we're talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. Some people might even be a little afraid or a little fearful. Can I just tell you, you don't have to be afraid of the Holy Spirit. He's going to regulate His power in your life to be exactly what you need, exactly when you need it. Don't forget that in another lesson, we talked about the Holy Spirit. He doesn't come with this dominating force overtaking you in a strange or weird way. He's gentle as a dove. He's wise as a counselor. He's reassuring as a comforter. He's loyal and dependable. He's a lifelong friend. He's knowledgeable and experienced. He's a guide to any and every area of your life. His power is always connected to and regulated by himself. Can you say amen? See, if Yolanda calls me into the kitchen, which she has on many occasions, to open up a jar, say a jar of pickles. I don't say, hold on, honey. And then I go to the shed and I pull out a sledgehammer. And I come back into the kitchen. I say, put it down right there on the counter, baby. Bam! And pickles and pickle juice. That would be silly. We don't have to be afraid of the Holy Spirit pulling out a sledgehammer when all we need to do is open up a jar of pickles. But on the other hand, when he needed to go to work in Jesus and raise him from the dead, the sledgehammer was needed. Amen. He always regulates his power so we don't need to be afraid of him. Here's the third truth. Spiritual power must be activated by me. Come on, say it with me, church. Spiritual power must be activated by me. Look at Acts 1.8 again as we're getting ready to close. Acts 1.8, the first half. Listen to this. Jesus is speaking. He's telling his disciples. But you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
Now the word receive is the Greek word lambano. L-A-M-B-A-N-O. Lambano. And it means to take hold of or to grasp firmly. In other words, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and He wants to share His life and His power with it. And you're taking hold of it. And you're grasping it firmly. There's obviously a God part. We can't do His part. But then there's our part. Where we activate the power by receiving it by faith. By laying hold of it by faith. Ephesians 5.18 and 19 affirms this truth. It says, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead... Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 19 says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts when you're singing songs. For example, when you're making music to the Lord, when you're worshiping the Lord. I don't know about you, but I'm thinking you have experienced if you've ever done that. There's something of the power and the presence of the person of the Holy Spirit that begins to invade your spirit, begins to invade your proximity, begins to make Himself known. He affirms His love. He whispers a prophetic word. He encourages you where you're discouraged. He strengthens you where you might be weak. Can I just remind us, the Holy Spirit isn't going to empower anyone who believes they got all the strength that they already need. The Bible says in Isaiah, He gives strength and power to the weak. But those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. God is looking for people that are empty of themselves and willing to open up to the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Just so that I can be better. I can have a better life. I can have a cushy life. So that I can make more money. So that I can have more stuff. No, 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 no. We've missed it, friend. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit won't help us in that. He will. But he's desperate to get the message of Jesus Christ out to a lost and dying world. He's desperate for that. He loves people. And he's looking for people that will say, send me. Send me. Empower me. Use me to bring life and change to people all around me. Come on, would you stand with me to your feet? Father, we welcome the Holy Spirit today, and we're just so grateful that He's a gentleman. He's not pushy. He's not scary. Help us, God, to open our hearts to the Holy Spirit a little bit more this morning. Help us, God. We're so desperate for the Holy Spirit's power. We're so desperate for the Holy Spirit to bring transformation to me, to us as individuals to renew our mind, to increase our faith, to do away with the doubt, to set us free from addiction and behaviors that are patterns in our life that seem like we can never break free. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. God, start with me. Start with me, Lord God. Bring healing to my heart. Open my blind eyes. Set me free from anything that's holding me captive. I want to get away with these uh, invisible bars that are keeping me from becoming everything you want me to be. Start with me, God. 
And as you're doing that, we make room for the Holy Spirit to not only come upon us, but to move through us. To bring the message of life and hope and healing and restoration and, and deliverance and heaven and Jesus and your presence to a lost and dying world, God. I prophetically declare that this campus, as small as it is, is a seed in the ground and it's growing. It's growing in its hunger. It's growing in its thirst. It's growing in its mission. It's hungry for Jesus. It's hungry for the kingdom of God. And it's hungry to be used of God to bring transformation to this community and people around us. We love you, God. As we worship and as we end our gathering with worship, we make a decision right now to make more room for the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come upon us in a fresh new way. Empower us by your presence and by your divine energy. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe. And check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.